Breaker Breaker. Any ladies out there free for the evening? Dr. No is feeling lonely. This is Reno, and we're not dealing with you, Dr. No. We already told you. I know you. Ah, uh, you don't know me, Sleeping Beauty. You don't know the first thing about Dr. No. But you will. chills right it is still the same show oh my god still the same host i'm ashley flowers and i'm brett but i wanted to give all of our listeners a sense of what we're dealing with in this episode a serial killer who is totally faceless totally nameless but for a given cb radio name dr no Our story starts on June 12th of 1985 off of Interstate 71 in Mansfield, Ohio. At about 5.30 in the morning, a Mansfield trooper named Kevin Tilter was making road checks looking for any disabled vehicles when he spotted something strange in the dark. As he drew closer, he quickly realized it was the body of a young woman. She had been badly beaten and left only partially clothed, and although she was unresponsive, he could tell that she was still alive. Trooper Tiltler gave this girl mouth-to-mouth while he waited for backup to arrive. She was eventually transported to a hospital, but with no identification on her, it took a few hours before police could run her prints and compare her face to mugshots taken just six months prior when the same girl was arrested for solicitation. Using the prints in the mugshots, they were able to confirm that this woman was 25-year-old Marsha Matthews. Marsha was the mother to an 8-year-old girl, and she had a family who loved her, a family that would have to pull life support from Marsha just two and a half days after she was admitted to the hospital because the machines were the only thing keeping her alive. Marsha's family donated her eyes, her liver, and her kidney for transplant to three other patients around Ohio in an attempt to make something matter from this horrible thing that had happened to them. But when the whirlwind was over, when the dust settled, the family had nothing. No mother, no Marsha, no answers, no justice. And the police weren't any closer than the day that Trooper Tilter found her. In the days after Marsha's attack, the sheriff's sergeant, John Napier, was investigating the case, talking to other women who worked the lots with Marsha, talking to drivers who might have been in the area at the time, and one man admitted to having contact with Marsha about two and a half to three hours before she was found. 
They could have been having a sexual encounter, but the guy said that Marsha woke him up around 2.30 like he had requested so that he could get back on the road. But then after that, he didn't see her. Shortly after, around 3 o'clock in the morning, another woman at the truck stop said that she saw Marsha getting into another semi with an Arkansas logo on the door and a man behind the wheel. Now, two and a half hours after she was seen getting into that car is when the trooper found her along the side of the interstate. Leads were few and far between in this case, it seems. They had some DNA, but nothing great yet that they could do with it. This was the mid-80s. So they would wait for more leads to surface or for technology to advance. They expected this to take time. What they didn't expect were for similar cases to start piling up around the state. Just a year later, on July 20th, 1986, at a truck stop rest stop along the highway at the intersection of I-71 and I-76 in Medina County, Ohio, a truck driver had stopped to take a pee. The rest stop was closed, so the trucker looked around for a place to go to the bathroom, and he came across the body of a woman dressed only in a black camisole tank top. She was placed behind this three-foot concrete barrier that was placed along an exit ramp. It was clear that she had been beaten across the face and she had ligature marks around her neck, suggesting that she had also been strangled. Unlike Marsha, this woman was not left still breathing. Her killer had learned. Police were later able to identify this woman as 23-year-old Shirley Dean Taylor, a sex worker known in the area who was originally from Virginia. Was it obvious for law enforcement to connect it to Marsha's case? No, they were actually found in different counties. So as we continue to talk about each victim, that is something important to point out. They are all found in different counties, all initially investigated by different departments, and not connected until much later. One of the things police make note of when investigating Shirley's case is that besides that camisole top, the rest of her clothes were missing and never located. Not her pants, not her underwear, nothing else. Police did the usual canvassing, but no one saw Shirley getting into any semis the night that she was last seen. There was one report, though, the only lead they had to go on. Other girls who were working in the same lot as Shirley, a lot in Austin town, said that they heard Shirley get solicited that night by someone over the CB radio. Someone calling himself Dr. No. So they had a name, but it was a fake name, a name that could be changed on a whim. So it led those investigators nowhere. Later that same year, in December, another trucker came across another body of an even younger woman left just along the side of the road in Ashland County, Ohio. This was 18-year-old April Barnett, and her body had been completely frozen, likely because of the conditions outside. April wasn't beaten or hit with a blunt object like the other two victims. She was strangled. Which is different, but we did see strangulation in Shirley's case, right? So it's not out of the realm of possibility that's still the same person? Right. April was likely a victim of sex trafficking as well. Not by this guy who killed her, but she had a boyfriend named Anthony Pickett. And I'm going to air quotes boyfriend because he was also her pimp. And he'd been arrested in the past for transporting minors across state lines. So she was so young, again, just 18, that I'm sure he suckered her in when she was just a child and trapped her into this life. 
Antony told investigators that he didn't know who did this to April. He didn't know the last guy that she was with, but he did know of a guy who roughed her up a few days earlier. He gave the police the plate numbers to the guy's truck, and the police tracked it down to a 37-year-old man named Alvin Wilden, but they never interviewed him. Years later, when the department was asked about why they never questioned him when they tracked him down, they ended up citing an overwhelming number of leads that they just couldn't handle and a lack of funding. That same lack of funding and the fact that more cases were popping up for Ashland County law enforcement, and let's be real, the fact that April was a sex worker living on the fringes of society with no one really wanting to interact with or push police, all of this played into the reason that her case went cold. But April's killer was just heating up. And he was ready to strike just two months later in February of 1987. In early February of that year, a local sex worker named Anna Marie Patterson was picked up by the police for loitering and solicitation. She made an offhand comment to one of the officers before her release that she knew who was killing these women at truck stops, but said that she was afraid to name him. Now, the officers didn't press her. And they ended up just releasing her. And I don't know if this was because, again, they didn't think she knew what she was talking about. Or in the officers' minds, there weren't multiple cases. Again, these are all happening in different counties. Right. So I don't know if they didn't take her seriously or what, but they let her go. The very next day, Anna Marie disappeared. After she was released, her husband, who also acted as her pimp, they went to the Austintown truck stop. That's the second time you've mentioned the Austintown truck stop. Is that pretty popular? Is it a really common route? Oh, yeah. From what I can tell, it was like the truck stop in Ohio, the most massive, the most trafficked by truckers. So it was a spot where girls could pick up a lot of men. So they go to this truck stop in Austintown, Anna Maria and her husband together, and he clicks on the CB radio to see who is out there and who's looking for company that night. The radio crackles, and a voice comes through the other end. Breaker, breaker. Any ladies out there free for the evening? Dr. No is feeling lonely. This is Reno. And we're not dealing with you, Dr. No. We already told you. Oh, come on. How about my sleeping beauty? You out there tonight, sleeping beauty. Come on, girl. No, I know you. I think hearing Dr. No's voice was jarring to Anna Marie because she ended up leaving that truck stop shortly after. Many of the summaries of her case that you'll read online will say that she went missing from that same lot, but in one of the earliest reports of her case that I found, in an actual newspaper article from 1990, it says that Anna Marie's husband drove her to a truck stop just over the border in Pennsylvania. My assumption is that they left the Austin town lot because of Mr. No, but it is possible that he followed her because after Anna Marie's husband dropped her off at the new lot in Pennsylvania and drove away, he never saw her alive again. 
When a week went by of not being able to find Anna Marie after dropping her off at that lot, her husband reported her missing to the police. Now, this was actually Valentine's Day 1987 that he made the report. Police learned that not only is Anna Marie missing, but she is also six months pregnant at the time. Her husband is sure that she wouldn't have just run off, and he tells police about the mysterious Dr. No, who was calling out to Anna Marie the week before using her CB handle, Sleeping Beauty. Time goes by, but Anna Marie doesn't turn up. Week after week, until March 23, 1987, when a sleeping bag is found along I-71 in Warren County. Inside the bag is the body of missing Anna Marie. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and she had ligature marks around her neck. In another strikingly familiar fashion to the other victims, Anna Marie was found only wearing a maroon colored shirt, her underwear and pantyhose, but the rest of her clothing items were missing. This again fit the pattern of the other women who were killed to a T, but she was found in yet again another county where a totally different team of investigators were going to look at her case who were totally unaware of the killings before her. Okay, but it took a long time for them to find her though, right? Yeah. I feel like the other girls were found within like a day or so of going missing. How was she not found if she was in the sleeping bag along the highway for over a month. Well, that is because she wasn't along the highway for almost a month. And this is one noticeable difference between the women who were killed before Anna Marie and all the ones who would come after her. Anna Marie was left on the side of the road likely just a short time before she was found. But she was likely killed just right after going missing. Wait, so... She wasn't there the whole time? No. Her body had been refrigerated and preserved by her killer for over a month. So what was different about Anna Marie? He kept her frozen, kept her with him for a long time. And when he finally did dispose of her body, she was the only victim who he covered in any kind of way, wrapping her in a sleeping bag. Do you think the killer was just getting smarter or was he trying to conceal her for a very specific reason, like her pregnancy or something? So it has to be for a specific reason, because as the story continues, you'll notice that no other victims, like I said, before or after her were covered or frozen in this way. Okay. So we think it's because she's pregnant or because she had already gone to the police one or both, I don't really know, but it gives us one more piece of information about this killer. He has access to some kind of large freezer, possibly even on his truck, if he's driving around a refrigerated truck, which could narrow down the list of our suspects. I would have never thought of that. Right. But just like Anna Marie had been kept on ice for over a month, her case would be put on ice for much longer. Later that summer, the body of another girl is discovered in yet another county near Dayton, Ohio this time, off of I-70. The victim was found on August 10th, 1987, wearing only blue jeans and pale blue underwear, both that were pulled down to her mid-thigh, and the cause of her death was strangulation. 
Unlike the other victims, it was difficult to identify this girl. Her fingerprints weren't in the system for past arrests, and there was no missing person reports in the state that matched a 17 to 25-year-old Caucasian woman who was about 5'5 and 125 pounds and who had a rose tattoo on her left breast and a unicorn tattoo on her right. With not even a name to associate with this victim, the investigators had no idea where to begin. No witnesses, no suspects that could be named of, absolutely nothing. Then for almost three years, Ohio was quiet until another unidentified body was discovered in Licking County, Ohio on April 19, 1990. Only dressed in her underwear, this 20 to 30-something woman was found near a pilot travel center off of I-70. She had been beaten on her head, face, and neck with a blunt force object. When her autopsy was done, the medical examiner was able to determine that she had engaged in sex some 12 to 24 hours before she had died. They tried to connect a missing persons report to this woman nationwide, but nothing seemed to fit. So six women in Ohio, six separate counties, none of which were wising up to the fact that a serial killer was operating in their backyard. And they wouldn't wise up until a reporter named Michael Behrens started to put together what was happening piece by piece, article by article. And on March 10th, 1990, he published his terrifying conclusion in the Columbus Dispatch. There was a serial killer operating in their backyard, the same person responsible for killing these women. But even more frightening, Michael was sure that this killer wasn't just operating in Ohio. Michael believed he could link the killer to at least three more victims in neighboring states. The other women Michael identified as being victims of this killer were Jill Allen, LaMonica Cole, and Terry Rourke, all found killed from 1987 to 1990 along the highways and all had clothing missing, but these women were found in Illinois, Pennsylvania, and New York. So again, his article went live on March 10th. Immediately, the public and law enforcement were concerned. How did they miss this? By the 15th, just five days later, the Ohio Attorney General announces that he has assembled a task force bringing together investigators from Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, and Tennessee, because in the five days they looked at it, they realized there could have been even more victims than Michael had identified. There were a lot of suspects that came forward as the task force investigated this as a whole. In 1991, Michael did a follow-up article about one specific suspect that literally gives me full body chills. He tells the story of an incident that happened years earlier in the midst of the killings, something that was strange at the time, but it didn't raise any red flags like it would after people knew what they should be looking for. So here's the story. Back in 1987, again, in the middle of this killing spree, there's an accident involving one tractor trailer on I-71. This rig slid on a patch of ice and ran into a bridge. When the truck crashed, more than 200 pieces of women's clothing came pouring out of the cab. In addition to the clothing, there were also handcuffs, chains, leather restraints, and a stash of pornographic material. 
The driver was critically injured and taken to a hospital and eventually went home and was on disability for some time due to his injuries. But all of those pieces of clothing, all of those handcuffs and restraints and chains, they were all just returned to him. What? Yeah, we will never know if those 200 items were Anna Marie's pants or Shirley's underwear, or if the clothing could link to other girls in other states who've been found but not yet linked to a serial killer. So the officers investigating this accident didn't think that any of that stuff was weird for him to have? I guess not. I think a lot of our listeners know, and Ashley, you know, I work in transportation. I am actually around truck drivers all day, every day at my nine to five, right? Right. There's no reason for any of that to be there. 200 pieces of women clothing? No? They don't just like no. run, around, run around with that? No. It's it's such a like wild west sort of occupation that the guys out there are like, I hate to be stereotypical, but like they're guys, they're men. And um, like the porn, okay, sure. Yeah, I, that, I didn't even question that. Like that's that, yeah, sure. Let's, let's just let that slide but everything else a ton of leather leather restraints women's clothing chains um, handcuffs i i work in the safety department of a transportation company i help investigate accidents for my company and if that was found on one of my guys i feel like i would also have some questions did he give any excuse for any of these items Well, I don't know what excuse he gave police or if they ever asked for one at all. Again, at the time, they had no idea there was a serial killer on the loose taking women's clothing as trophies. But Michael, the guy who did the article, followed up with the man's wife when he did a follow-up in 1991, and her story was anything but believable. This is what the trucker's wife told the reporter back in 1991 about why her husband was traveling with all of those clothing items, with those handcuffs and chains and restraints. She said, oh, it's not weird that he had 200 pieces of women's clothing. You see, he was doing his own laundry back then, and he must have grabbed my laundry by mistake and taken it with him in his truck. Okay, so... I have two kids now, plus me and my husband, and even on our worst laundry day, 200 items of just my clothing is, one, more than I own, and two, would never happen on the same day. I cannot agree more. 200 pieces of clothing items for a laundry day is crazy. And, you know, things we'll never know now, but I wish we had any kind of inventory about what was taken in that accident. Were they anything remotely like hers? Were they even the same size? Were they her style? Or were they like the same type of clothing? Because I feel like a handful of them were found without pants or their underwear. Was it 200 pieces of panties? Well, and I mean, to your point right before, it's not only does it need to not match his wife, but like, yes, or do we have a size four pant and then a size 10 pant and clearly they don't all belong to one person. Right. No, that's a really good point. So they were either hers and she has the most insane wardrobe I've ever heard of or she is covering for him. What about all the other stuff they found? Well, she said that the handcuffs were no big deal because they were from his old job when he used to work as a private security guard. 
As for the other things though, she could not find a reason for the chains or the leather restraints and she just said that her husband was a hoarder or like a pack rat and he kept everything. Yeah, I'm not questioning him keeping things, but my question is more on why does he have them in the first place? Right. And something else I find really interesting about this suspect is over and over in the articles that I was reading, it was said that anyone who looks at this case, task force included, wondered if their killer used to work for law enforcement or some type of private security Mm. because they thought it was more than just a coincidence that every single victim was found in a different county. Not one of them doubled up. It made everyone wonder if the killer was familiar with how law enforcement worked and would know that they wouldn't be communicating and piecing these together. Uh, it sounds like this driver is our guy, right? I mean, he is my favorite suspect, but his wife, at least at the time, said it couldn't have been him because he was home. She points out the fact that he was on disability after that accident for 18 months, and she said that he was home every single day with her. And during those 18 months, three of the 11 murders happened. So according to her, it's a no-go. I would love to know if they are still together and if she still has the same story. Like if I were reinvestigating this case almost 30 years later, I would want to start with her. Oh, wait. Again, transportation worker here. There are a lot of companies where you can be on disability and still work. Wait, is that a thing? Yeah. So disability works for employment. So you get hired, you have um, like a certain amount of rights in your state, if you will. And then there's independent contracting. So independent contracting means that the company that you're in a contract with doesn't need to provide benefits, doesn't need to provide PTO, doesn't need to provide anything. And you're a 1099 contractor. So though it does count towards your income, you can still work while also on disability or social security. up. I work for a 1099 company. All of the truck drivers that I work with are 1099. So none of them are employees. They're all independent contractors. So I thought it was even strange for her to say that for 18 months, I mean, unless the guy is in a full body cast, you're telling me he didn't leave the house for 18 months? Like you would go crazy. So to me, that story already was fishy. And I was like, I'm sure if he wanted to like get in his big rig and go traveling, he could have. But this is even crazier. Yeah, I I have contractors who um, just came off disability or are about to go on disability, and they're able to continue to work because of this contractor status. Now, they are limited to how much they can make because it all goes into income, obviously. But uh, he only, quote-unquote, killed three times in that 18-month span would fit within that profile, I think. Wow. So in this article that I read, it said, because this is after the task force had been put together, it said that investigators were going to relook into this. But after that article, I couldn't find any follow-up on this clothing hoarder trucker. And he faded into obscurity like so many other suspects. 
The closest they ever got to a consistent lead was the description of a truck that multiple victims were seen getting into before they died. It was a black or dark blue Peterbilt truck, but their driver was a ghost with a fake name behind a CB radio that they could never track down. The task force never made any arrests in the case, and whether it was because of the women's professions or because it's just human nature to move on to the next biggest, scariest monster, the public also forgot the story as well. As the years went by, other names got added to this list as possible victims. For example, there was an unidentified woman found in April of 1992 who got associated to this killer for a while Years later, she was found in Ohio having died from blunt force trauma, and she was found wearing just a blue short sleeve shirt, one white tube sock, a men's brief style underwear, and she had this gray baseball cap and a lady's calf-length boot that were laying next to her. She remained unidentified for a long time, and for a brief time, which is why she wasn't associated with the killer right away, police believed that they had caught her killer. There was a man named Dennis Hetzel, and I think his phone number was found with her, and there was actually a bite mark on her body that matched his teeth. And in 1993, he was secretly indicted for her murder, but he ended up getting extradited to Texas in 1995 to stand trial and eventually serve time for raping his two young daughters. Now, he ended up dying in prison, and if you look at 90% of the places online, they just say that this Jane Doe's case is closed because he did it. But her name does pop up with this serial killer every now and again, and I found this one place online where they quote an article, but the actual link to the article doesn't work anymore, and it says that eventually his DNA was tested against a sample from the victim and that it didn't match meaning that Dennis wasn't our killer and this woman could have been another victim of this same man that we're calling Dr. No. Again, many years go by and this case of a serial killer gets further and further from people's minds and it didn't resurface again until 2009 when our unidentified victims start getting named. The first was our girl found in 1987, the one with her pants and underwear pulled down and the tattoo of a rose on her left breast and the unicorn on her right. She would finally get a name when over in Kansas City, a woman named Stephanie Clack gets a call from some relatives. They tell her that they've just been watching a TV show called The Forgotten, where you can search through John and Jane Doe's to see if they match any missing people. They were telling Stephanie this because 22 years before this call, Stephanie had been eating pizza with her sister Paula, talking about buying Bon Jovi tickets, not a care in the world. But then Paula left, and she was never seen again for 22 years. At the time, Paula's family tried to file a missing persons report, but because she was 21, it was very difficult. After some time, they finally got her on a list, and although there would be occasions, few and far between, where they were asked to look at pictures and try to identify Jane Doe's, it was never Paula. So when Stephanie learned about NamUs, this system at the tip of her fingertips, she figured what's the harm. She sat down at her computer, started inputting her sister's info, Caucasian, female, 21, missing from Missouri, but nothing came up. 
So she tried one more thing. Caucasian, female, 21. Then she left the location blank, just in case somehow her sister made it out of the state. There were 10 matches. One by one, she filtered through them. One through nine were not her sister. But then... Oh my God. She looked at the profile for number 10. She was looking for something distinctive, something that only her sister would have. Mm. And that's when she saw it. This Jane Doe, found in Ohio, had both a unicorn and a rose tattoo. (gasps) Stephanie said when she saw that, she knew she had found her and she just broke down crying. A DNA test would confirm what she already knew. That Jane Doe was Paula Beverly Davis. She was killed just two days after sharing that pizza with her sister. No one knows how she got to Ohio or why she would have even gone there or or if she did on her own. Perhaps she was picked up in Missouri and just left there. But this is the first time we realize that our killer isn't just picking up sex workers because as far as I could tell, Paula had no history of that. She did have a history of hitching rides though, so it seems our killer was confident enough to pick up someone who might even have a family who was looking for them. And he was intelligent enough to know that by leaving her in another state, it would be harder to identify her. And this would be the case of all of our unidentified victims. The last unidentified woman I talked about, the one where they thought they had a killer, but years later realized it didn't because of the DNA, Well, she had a daughter who had always been looking for her, and in 2011, her daughter submitted her DNA to NamUs. Then, in 2012, the investigators who had her case had submitted this Jane Doe's DNA to NamUs, and they were able to match them, identifying her as Sharon Lynn Kadzierski. Now, she was actually from Oregon, but was visiting friends in Florida when she vanished in 1989 a little over two years before she was actually found. She was a mother who had recently divorced after 17 years of marriage, and there wasn't a history of prostitution. But at the time she vanished, she didn't have anywhere to live. She had no address, and she was kind of couch hopping or going place to place visiting friends. The third unidentified girl we had The one found in April 1990, she was identified in 2016 as Patrice Corley. She'd gone missing from Louisville, Kentucky back in early 90, and her sister-in-law tried to report her missing back then, but they actually wouldn't take the report because they said she wasn't a blood relative. She never dropped it, though. After a new police force was formed, when two agencies merged, she went back and tried to file again. This time when she filed, they got a hit on an Ohio Jane Doe. There was also a Jane Doe found in Ohio in April of 81 who might have been the killer's first victim. Again, at least from the ones we know about in Ohio. We actually did an entire mini episode um, on our Patreon at the $10 level where we talk about how new DNA technologies were used to identify this victim. She went missing from another state outside of Ohio and then was found dumped alongside the highway. This is terrifying because this whole time we've been talking about Ohio and maybe the surrounding states, but really this killer was picking up women from all over the country and then just leaving them in Ohio. Well, not even that. I'm worried it could be even bigger. Not only is he picking up women from all over the country and then dumping them in Ohio, but 
the ones in Ohio are just the ones we know about. What if he's been picking them up from all over and also leaving these women all over in many states across the country and we have no real scope of the magnitude of this killer's work? Now, the years between these murders and now have seen a lot of truck driver serial killers put away. I mean, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, we actually did an episode on him. There was a man named Robert Remper who's in jail now for murder, and we know that he traveled a lot in Ohio and Pennsylvania. There was another truck driver serial killer named Sean Patrick Gobble who's in jail for murders he committed in North Carolina and Tennessee, but it's mentioned that he was questioned in deaths from at least seven other states, and he also drove a dark Peterbilt truck like the one some of the victims were seen getting into, and the victims he went to jail for were also found along the highway. Yeah, and... We've had so many listeners send us links to articles about Samuel Little. He claimed to kill over 90 victims. Any chance it could have been him? Well, so yeah, I actually checked and he was in jail from late 84 to early 87. So if the cases are truly all connected, I don't think that he's our guy. But I'm glad that you brought it up because I had a feeling a lot of people would. So... There have been a lot of names over the years, but no one has ever had to answer for their crimes. And the families of these women, many of them having young kids who grew up without mothers, have never gotten justice. Were there any DNA samples in any of the cases that could be tested against suspects today? Actually, yes. There was DNA in a couple of cases. And for example, I know from a news article that in Marsha Matthews' case, they had a good enough sample to submit to CODIS. But since this case is still unsolved, I'm assuming our killer has either never been caught for another crime or he's in a state and in jail in a place that hasn't yet collected his DNA for comparison. But what about all these new things we can do with DNA? If they have a sample that's good enough for CODIS, I mean, couldn't they try? Well, I think it depends on if there are any usable samples left. Once it's been processed for CODIS, I don't think it can be reused and sent to a place like Parabon for genealogy testing. Okay, but if they have any usable samples left, I mean, if they're truly connected, they only need one sample to catch the guy who did all this, right? Do you think they'll send it off? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know if this case is a priority for anyone. I'm guessing no, based on how hard it was for me to even do this episode. Like, I have never researched harder or had to dig farther back into old newspapers than I have to tell this story. I don't think this is a priority for anyone. And if no one is putting the pressure on police, like Michael was back in the day when he did the article, like no one's going to do anything. And not because they're like ignoring it, but they're going to focus on new cases that are popping up every single day. Ugh. I so hope and wish that the families are still pushing the authorities to, to go after justice in these cases. I do too, but honestly, not just the families. Our crime junkies can start talking about it as well. Sharing this episode on social media, get people talking about these cases again to generate some interest. There very well might not be anything usable. Like, I just don't know because no one has ever even covered this case again in so long. And you know what? If there is something and it's a problem of resources, like I'll put my money where my mouth is. If anyone from Ohio law enforcement is listening and you have the power to put a request in for testing in any of these cases, if you have any evidence in this case that is usable and could be retested, But it's just a problem of, like, funding. 
reach out to us. You can find our contact info on the website. I will personally contribute to fund testing in this case. These women need justice. Their families deserve answers. And I know the justice system isn't perfect. And most of the time, they're doing the best they can with the little they have. So let's all help. We will contribute financially. We will get these tests done if if that's what it takes. And we need you, crime junkies, to start talking about the case a lot. Share this episode a lot so people can't help but take notice. Because for all we know, Dr. No is still out there. Maybe he's picked a new dumping ground. Maybe he's picked a new name. But he could very well be in a semi-truck that just passed you looking for his next victim. Again, for anyone listening in Ohio who works in law enforcement, if this is something that can be retested, again, I know there's not always samples, but if there are, and if it's a problem of finances, we are happy to help. Reach out to us and you can find our information on our website along with additional information on this case, crimejunkiepodcast.com. For everyone else, Britt, if they want to follow us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram at Crime Junkie Podcast and on Twitter at Crime Junkie Pod. And again, I was serious, you guys. We need people talking about these cases. Nothing gets done if nobody talks about it. So on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, share this episode. Tell your friends to listen. We had the summer of justice, but let's just continue that. We've got all of these new technologies, and I hope there's a way to bring some answers to all of these families. We will be back next week, you guys, with a brand new episode. This episode of Crime Junkie was researched, written, and hosted by me with co-hosting by Britt Praywatt. All of our editing and sound production was done by David Flowers. And all of our music, including our theme, comes from Justin Daniel. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?